Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bible, that's where we're at. Thanks for being here tonight. We're continuing in our study of the book of Daniel. Uh, if you were with us last night, we were looking at Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, has the first of a couple of dreams that are troubling to him. The first one is sort of minor trouble. The next one will be very troubling to him. But what we essentially talked about last night, at, at the heart of what we looked at in Daniel chapter 2, was that given the opportunity to elevate himself, uh, Daniel doesn't take that opportunity. God had given him the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question. He told him the dream and its interpretation. And yet when he was pressed and Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, do you know the dream and its interpretation? Daniel is so focused on being deflective um, that he says, no, I don't. There's not a man who can tell you that thing. But there is a God in heaven who reveals these things. And he is the one who's revealed it to you. We talked about the importance for us as disciples in, in the world in which we live to be constantly pointing away from ourselves, And we looked at John chapter 3 and the example of John the Baptist. We mentioned briefly the example of Joseph who does the same thing in front of Pharaoh. Now we come to Daniel 3 and anytime I'm looking at a text like Daniel 3, I always want to do this with a little bit of a warning. And here's the warning. Daniel 3 is likely a familiar text to you. So you, if you've been around Christians or the church for any amount of time, you've seen a cartoon of this or a flannel graph or a puppet show or a Veggie Tales or whatever. And what can happen is... Because we're so familiar with the thing, we can go, well, I already, know, I already know what this is. Like, I already know what it says. I already know the story. I know everything that happens. Like, let, let's move on to something I've never heard before. That's a really dangerous thing to do because every time we come to a text new, right? Even if you studied Daniel 3 yesterday, you're not the same person you were yesterday, right? God is continuing to transform us. He's continuing to reveal himself to us. He's continuing to conform us to the image of his son. So every time we open God's word, even if we come to a familiar text, we come to it as someone who is hopefully more conformed to the image of Christ, and therefore there are new things to see and new things to learn, right? So be careful that you don't come to Daniel 3 with your presuppositions. Um, if you're here tonight and you're hoping that I'm going to answer the question for you of where Daniel is, in Daniel chapter 3, I got nothing for you. Yeah, he doesn't show up in this chapter. If you want my opinion, this is going to make you mad. If you want my opinion, I think Daniel's bowing in this chapter. That always makes people frustrated. Here's why I think that. Because every single one of the heroes in the Bible have real obvious flaws and moments of weakness and moments of brokenness. I could be wrong. Maybe someday I get to heaven and Daniel's like, you jerk, why'd you say that about me? I wasn't bowing. I was on vacation or whatever. He may correct me. I'll be pleased to be corrected in eternity. But right now, when I look at the story of Daniel, uh, that, it, that is one of the places where, where I think perhaps we're seeing his brokenness and his humanity, which we all have, but don't get worried about that. It's not the point of what we're studying tonight. Let's dig into this. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king e erects a massive statue of himself and then calls all the people to bow down to it. I don't want you to miss the fact that we are living in a world that is constantly inviting us to bow down to its idols, right? There, there's not a place where they've got a big statue stacked up that they're wanting you to kneel before, but constantly, everybody. And, and, and if you immediately thought of one particular kind of idol or one particular kind of uh, false god to worship, I also want you to recognize that, that the other group of people you're not thinking of, whatever that other group is, they also have idols for you to worship, Right? So we, we are predisposed to uh, demonize and villainize certain groups because of who we are and the life we've had and where we come from. And we say, oh yeah, those people are always putting up their idols. Guess what? The other people are also putting up idols. And we have to be on guard against idols all the time from every avenue, right? We always have to be watching for anything that would draw us to worship that isn't, isn't the worship of Christ, right? Christ is the source and the heart of our worship. And anything that distracts us from that can, can be idolatry. We've got to be always on guard. So there's a picture of that here as we go. It says this in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar 
made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all. But have you ever had a, um, sorry, a little side note. Have you ever had uh, in school, did you ever have to write like a report and you had to have a certain number of words in the report? I have a sneaky suspicion that when uh, God inspired Daniel to write Daniel 3, he's like, I would like it to hit this particular word count. And you'll see he uses the same technique we used to use in elementary school. So here it is. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, you and I could have said all of that in, in much fewer words, but you get the gist of what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this idol, and then he says, hey, when the band's playing, everybody bows down and they worship this, this statue of me. And it's an intimidating moment because not only does he set up this image of himself, not only does he set the parameters under which the worship must happen, but he also sets the, the consequence for failure to do so. And the failure to do so is to be executed in the fiery furnace. Um, I talked on Sunday morning about the fact that sometimes under pressure and sometimes in a pinch, we, we make poor decisions. Uh, there's actually one of, my, one of my favorite stories, and some of you have heard me tell it before, but one of my favorite stories from when I was working here at Hume Lake, in 1997, my very first summer, happened over in the Ponderosa Lodge uh, on a summer night, just like this one. My wife and I were hanging out with another couple in the Ponderosa Lodge. I was leading worship for uh, Ponderosa Camp that summer. And uh, we're sitting in the lodge, it's like 11, 11.30 at night, and, uh, and one, of our, one of our maintenance guys comes in, and he, he walks into the Ponderosa Lodge, he goes, hey, you guys want to see a bear? And I grew up in Arizona. I'd never seen a bear. And I was like, yeah, I want to see a bear. He's like, there's one right out here on the deck. So we come out of the Ponderosa Lodge. And then, you know, that deck that goes right past the flagpole, right there by the clothing company, uh, towards the dining hall. Back in the day, we had trash cans, kind of where the water fountain is now. There were trash cans sitting right there. And they weren't like bear cans. They were just regular old trash cans that the, the, that the bear could dump over. And so a bear had turned over the trash. And he was just like eating out of the trash can right there in front of Ponderosa Dining. So it was like from me to like maybe almost all the way back, like maybe where Gary's sitting or whatever. You know, it's quite a distance, but I felt pretty good about it. So we're trying to, he goes, we got to get rid of this bear because we got, you know, 700 kids up here in the cabins. We can't have a bear right here in close proximity. What if a kid came down to use the bathroom? We got to get this bear out of here. So I'm like, yeah, what do we do? He goes, well, you just have to make loud noises. So we go, okay. So we're standing far away. We go, hey, bear, you got to get out of here. Get going, bear. You got to, you know, get a move on, whatever. And the bear doesn't even look up, right? He just keeps eating trash. So we scoot a little bit closer, right? We got to get a little bit closer. And this time we sort of puff out our jackets, you know, and we kind of make ourselves seem a little bit bigger. And uh, we go, hey, bear, you got to get up out of here. You got to get going. Come on. You know, we're trying to like scare the bear or whatever. And uh, the bear, this time the bear kind of looks up and then he goes back to eating the trash, you know. And so we're like, man, we got to do something. So we get a little bit closer. And now, I mean, I don't, 
my memory is a little vague, and you'll see why in a second. But now it feels like I'm like from me to y'all. You know, like we're right, I'm right here with this bear. And we just get all the energy we've got, and we go, bear, you gotta go. You can't stay here anymore. And just like that, this bear goes back on his two legs, and he goes, Rah! you know, and I, I don't even know. I can't even tell you how long he did that or what. I felt his breath. I turn around like this and I run as fast as I can down the deck, right, into the Ponderosa Lodge. I shut the door and I lock it. And uh, as soon as I've locked the door, I look through the window and that's when I see my wife on the other side of the glass, um, who I had sprinted past in my great fear and uh, ran past and locked her out there with the bear. To be honest with you, when I was running, I didn't even remember I was married, you know, like that was completely gone. All of my talk about nobility and chivalry and, you know, I will give my life for you, rich or poor, all of that, that all just like evaporated when threatened by a bear. I I probably pushed her out of the way to get to safety, right? Not my finest moment, but when we feel like our lives are threatened or when we're in a pinch, it's hard sometimes to keep track of the character that we hold dear, right? The the, the values and the principles, that chivalry or that bravery or that, that character that's so vital. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, here's the thing, the music's going to play, and when it does, you, you bow down. And if you don't, that will, be, that will be the end of you, right? So this is a, it's a crisis moment for these young men, right? Exiles in a foreign place that couldn't care less about their faith, couldn't care less about their God, couldn't care less about their holy relics, like they are outsiders. So let's read what happens. Back to Daniel chapter 3, it says this in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. So you have to see the maliciousness in this. There is intent. They're trying to cause problems. Which, by the way, if you're a disciple, an ambassador of the kingdom of God, you will face sabotage and you will face betrayal and you will face people trying to, uh, to undo what you're trying to do, right? So that's just, that's just the name of the game. The Chaldeans come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What these men now are feeling is pressure, right? Pressure to conform, pressure to go along, right? It would have been, I think at this moment, it would have been easy for them uh, to have said, you know what, we, we believe the right things internally, right? We got the right things going on in our hearts. We got the right things going on in our minds. We believe that, that Jehovah is God. We believe that Nebuchadnezzar is not God. This is a false thing, but we, we want to prolong our ministry here as long as we can. And so in order just to have another day, of like being ambassadors in exile, let's just go with the flow, right? Let's just bow down. What's the big, we bow down and we just kind of get onto the next day and to the next thing and then we have the opportunity to be influential down the road. They could have made that decision to make an external compromise but hold on to internal resolve and yet that's, that's not what they do. That's not what they do at all. Instead, they decide to, to take a stand. Now, it's interesting and I, and I don't want you to miss it in verse 12 it's interesting, the thing that the Chaldeans say about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say this, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you, 
They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. I just want to, I want you to be clear, and, and I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar caught this or not, but that accusation is, is not 100% true. It is not true that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not paying attention. The accusation says they have not paid attention to you, but that isn't what's happening in the text. The reality of what's happening in the text is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are paying careful attention. Right? They're very aware of what, of what the king has asked. They're very aware of, of what's happening in the culture. They're very aware of what's going on. So what we don't want to say about these guys is that they're, uh, they're ambivalent or they're ignorant of what's happening, that they, just, they don't care about Nebuchadnezzar or care what he said. The opposite of that is true. These are guys who are paying attention. And the only reason I stop to point that out is that, again, as ambassadors living in 2022, whatever city you come from or wherever you live, you, you can't just not pay attention. Right? You can't just hunker down into a bubble of people who think and look exactly like you. We have to have our radar up. We have to be looking. We have to, have our, we have to be in the midst of conversations with our neighbors. We have to know what's happening in the world. Part of a discipleship, a key part of discipleship, is citizenship. Right? Citizenship is a part of discipleship. God has put us in a context for a reason to have an impact in the communities where we are. Right? That's part of what ambassadorship looks like. So I love the fact that they say, well, these guys don't pay any attention to you. And I get what they mean, but for our purposes, I want you to know and remember that these guys are paying attention. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made the stand that they did. They're paying attention. They understand what's going on. But they say, they don't worship your gods. That's true. They don't worship the golden image. All of that's correct. 13. Nebuchadnezzar is furious, uh, in furious rage, excuse me, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? If you're the kind of person who takes notes, I would encourage you to underline the last sentence of verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar asks a question, and God, in short order, will answer the question, right? One of the things that I love about this story is that they are interacting in such a way that it causes the people who don't care about their faith and don't recognize their God to ask questions about their faith and about their God. I know that what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is to intimidate them and to threaten them, and what he's saying is, is almost... Uh, hyperbolic. He's saying, like, there isn't, there isn't a God that will be able to save you from me. But what he literally says is, who is the God that can rescue you from my hand? And within a, a few hours, God will be like, hi, you asked about me a minute ago. I just, I just wanted you to know who I am, right? You asked and I answered. God still does that today. And if we will live our lives in such a way that the people around us are asking the question, who is the God that, that will save you? Who is the God that will work in your life? Who is the God that you serve? And who is the God that, will fo- that, that you follow? If we can get to a place where the people we're interacting with in our communities are asking that question because of the life that we're living, the reality is God will answer that question. His Holy Spirit will answer that question through us. Not necessarily always in the same dramatic ways that God answers the question here in Daniel 3, but God loves to answer this question. And I love to be provocative. Not, not provocative in the like, you know, sexy way, but I like to be, I, I mean, I... I kind of am that too, but I like to be provocative in the, uh, in, in the way of provoking a question or pro- provoking someone to think differently about a thing they've always thought or to look at something in a fresh way. I do think there's a piece of ambassadorship that is inviting people to shift their view. 
And some of that is causing them to go like, who is your God? I like living my life in such a way that the guys at Circle K go, what's your thing? Like, what's the deal with you? Why are you different than our other customers or whatever, right? So they're living this life that is provocative. Nebuchadnezzar said, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And then what we get in the next couple of verses here is what I think uh, is sort of the pivot point or the hinge of the whole chapter. So, so their response, similarly to what John the Baptist talked about last night in John 3, similarly is beautiful and articulate. I don't know how long they had to prepare this response. It feels in the text like they do it on the spot. Like he asked the question and they give this incredible like response. Either way, let's look at it because it, it is the focus of our attention tonight. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just want you to think about what they say here, because what they articulate in this little speech is a couple of things. They articulate certainty certainty about a couple of things. One of the things they're certain about is who God is, right? What they say is we, we know who our God is, right? We don't have to answer to you because our God, whom we serve, is able. They know who their God is. They know he's capable, right? They understand his power. They understand who God is. So there's a, there's a part of their response that says we are certain about who God is. Not only that, they're certain about what God has said. Otherwise, they'd have bowed down, right? They are certain that their God has said, you shall not worship any other God but me. You shall not worship any graven image, right? You shall not do these things. So they're confident and they, they're clear about the fact that uh, of who God is. They're certain about who God is. They're certain about what God has said in, in that they say, we will not serve false gods. And they're also certain, there's a third certainty, and you might miss it at first glance, but I don't want you to miss it. They're also certain that they don't know what God will do. They're confident in who he is, they're confident in what he said, and they're confident in the fact that he has not revealed his plan fully to them about their own lives. This is a thing that we as Christians miss a lot. We, we, we get the part about like, we are certain about who God is, and we are certain about what he has said in his word, right? But, but what happens a lot of times with our lives is then we, we try to pretend like we're also certain about how he works and what he'll do. We're certain about the way he will move. And, and even in our own lives, sometimes a lot of frustration, anger, uh, anxiety, tension, division comes because God doesn't do the thing that we want him to do or the thing that we would do if we were him, right? There's a couple of common mistakes. I, I think one of the common mistakes that happens a lot is that when we try to imagine what God is like, rather than looking at Jesus, who is the, the clearest articulation of what God is like, John 1 tells us that, Rather than looking at Jesus, we try and imagine what God is like. We just imagine ourselves on our best day, right? And we go, well, you know, I'm broken and flawed and I'm sinful and, I, and I'm prideful and greedy. But if I wasn't that, if I was perfect and good, then that must be what God would do. Eh, that's not it. He's not like you on your best day. He's not like your favorite pastor. He's not like your favorite politician. He's not like your hero from the, from the biographies you've read. He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. So you can't, you can't grasp him in terms of like, here's what I would do if I wasn't sinful. That's not who God is. You and I have no idea what God will do. 
Because he's going to do his thing, right? And his ways are not our ways. And sometimes we can anticipate what he might do based on the patterns that he set in Scripture. We can maybe take an educated guess. But you can be certain that you don't know what God's going to do. I love their certainty in this text. I love that they go, we know who our God is, and it's definitely not Nebuchadnezzar. We know what our God has said. And we know that we don't know what he'll do next. But either way, there's a God in heaven, and you're not him, right? You guys, this is, this is a transformational p- posture in our lives, right? In our, in our days and, and lives, it's a transformational posture to be able to hold on with certainty to the things that God has revealed about himself in Christ and to hold on to the things that God has said in his word and, and cling to those, right? Cling to them. But also always carry with you an uncertainty about how God will act in our age, what, what he will do next, how he will interact with people. I've said for a long time that, like, I guarantee you there wasn't a single solitary person on the shore of the Red Sea who was praying for God to part the waters and walk them across on dry land. They were praying a lot of stuff that day, and they were crying, and they were scared. Nobody thought of that plan. That was God's way. Nobody was going, hey, part the waters, and we'll walk across, and then Pharaoh's army will go in there, and, then you, and God's like, oh, yeah, I like that. I'm going to do that thing. You Good idea, right? N- nobody is anticipating what God will do, right? We can guess, but it's always a guess. Hold it like a guess. You're, it's fine to make guesses, but I love their certainty in the fact that they don't know what he'll do. I love what they say. Our God is able, right? Verse 17, our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What, what's he saying there? What are they saying? He will deliver us. I think it's very similar to what Paul says, right? When he's in prison, remember when Paul's writing from prison and he goes, I'm confident, hey, thanks for praying for me, but I'm hopeful because I'm confident that I'm going to be delivered either by life or death, right? And if you're reading that letter, if you were the first recipient of that letter, you'd, you'd be like, what? That's not, de- that's not the kind of deliverance we're praying for. We want you out of jail. But Paul's like, I'm delivered either way. If, if, I'm, if I'm executed, I get to be with Jesus, which honestly is my preference. I have a, a suspicion he's probably going to leave me here to be of greater assistance to you, but either way... I will be delivered by God. But he's unsure about exactly how God w- will, will make that go down. I think for us to hold that kind of uncertainty is a really beautiful posture for the people of God. Certain of who he is, certain of what he said, uncertain of what he will do. Or, or if you like certainty, you can say, certain that I don't know, <laughs> right? Certain that I don't know. He is able to deliver us, but if not, verse 18, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up for them. I mean, let, let's be honest with you. This story would be just as impacting and powerful if they died in the next verse. It's just as good of a story. I mean, I, mean, I, I like the way it goes. But realistically, for what it teaches us about obedience to God and trust and faith, the story's just as good if they go, hey, there's a God in heaven, you're not him, we know what he said, he's told us we can't bow down to any other statues, and so we're not going to bow down when the harp and the lyre and the trigon and the bagpipe play, and our God is able to deliver us, but he might not, let's see what he does, bring on the band, right? That's still a cool moment, because it's, it's a moment of confidence in the person and power of God, right? That's who we want to be. I heard somebody tell a story one time. It's kind of a cheesy evangelistic illustration, but it gets this point across really well. Uh, you guys maybe have even heard this, but they, somebody told the story. I don't remember who told me this, but um, somebody told the story of, uh, 
one of the Flying Walinda brothers, right? Famous trapeze artist, and he strings a cable over Niagara Falls, right? You've heard this before? He strings a cable over Niagara Falls, and there's a small crowd kind of gathering to watch him. He's a tightrope walker, most famous tightrope walker in the world. He walks back and forth on this cable. Crowd starts to gather. They're cheering for him, applauding. They're watching this whole thing. Pretty soon, he gets a unicycle out. He rides a unicycle back and forth on the cable. He does a couple somersaults. Like He's doing tricks over Niagara Falls on a steel cable, right? Then he goes to the side and he grabs a wheelbarrow and he's running. He's running on the cable back and forth with this wheelbarrow. And he comes over to the side where now there's like several hundred people gathered. And he calls out to the crowd and he says, have you, have you enjoyed my performance today? And they cheer, you know, and he says, how many of you think I'll be able to run across this thing, not just with the wheelbarrow, but with somebody in the wheelbarrow? How many of you think I'm capable of that? And, and they, uh, tons of people that raise their hand right there in front of me. He goes, you, sir, you believe I can run back and forth with a, with a man in this wheelbarrow? And he goes, yeah, of course. He goes, get in the wheelbarrow. Well, that's a whole other thing, right? That's a whole other thing. It's one thing from a distance to say, I know who God is, and I know what he said, but he needs to, he needs to do the thing I want him to do than it is to get in the wheelbarrow and, and trust that he's capable of, of being who you believe he is, right? These guys are not concerned with what happens next. They are comfortable with the uncertainty. They are not focused on their deliverance, but they're focused on obedience. It's not the same thing, right? Again, sometimes we sort of think that if we're living right and if we're memorizing Bible verses and we're doing all the stuff, that it's going to be fun and easy, doves landing on our shoulders and rainbows around every corner or whatever. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's lovely. But really, when Jesus talks about following him, he does it mostly in terms of dying to yourself. Somebody said one time that, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but somebody said the church has tried to market the gospel the way that the gap markets a pair of pants. And that, you know, they go, hey, this is comfortable, and you'll look good in it, everybody's wearing them, you know, like, you need these Gap jeans because they're not very expensive, it won't cost you very much, you'll be fashionable and popular, and, and you'll be happy that you bought them, so come get them, right? And, and that works for the Gap, and most of those things are true with their jeans or whatever, but, but when we try and market the gospel that way, there's a problem, because if we go, hey, come follow Jesus, it's comfortable, won't cost you very much, you're, you're going to love it, everybody's doing it, it's really fun, and, you know, it's going to be a great time had for all. Well, people don't stick around because when Jesus markets the gospel, he says, come and die, right? So people that come to Jesus because they think it's going to be comfortable and fun and fashionable and cheap, uh, they, they walk away from that pretty quick when they realize that it is what Jesus said and not, and not what some, some others have said. They're not focused on deliverance. They're focused on obedience. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus says, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's heavy words from Jesus. Like, it's going to be hard. But I see you, and I'm with you, and you, you are valuable to me, and I'll be with you. And nothing will happen outside of my view. Like, he talks about sparrows falling. He doesn't say no sparrows fall under God's watch. He says no sparrows fall without God knowing it, right? We know who God is. We know what he said. We don't know what he'll do let's see how this thing plays out in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, back to Daniel chapter 3. 
in verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar, understandably, was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There's lots of different opinions about what we're seeing here, right? This could be an angel of the Lord. This could be what's called a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. There is a course that Jesus teaches that you can sign up for in eternity. He taught it after the resurrection where he walked with people through the pages of the Old Testament and showed them all the places where he is revealed. I'm going to take that course upon arrival. Uh, I recommend that you join me there. I don't know if you get credits at Biola or not. Um, It will be interesting to hear Jesus say, yeah, no, I was there. It it was fun. That was a really cool day. Like they didn't, you know, it was nice to meet those guys or whatever. We don't know whether that's Jesus or whether that's the angel of the Lord. What we know is that God showed up. Nebuchadnezzar is astonished because he looks and he counts. And and he's astonished not just that there are three men walking around, but that there are four men walking around. So his astonishment isn't just that they're not burnt up, but that there are four there. He has the ability to count them. And look at what happens. I love this. Then, 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Here's what's really interesting. There's a part of me, and this is my provocative person, right, that I already mentioned. There's a part of me who thinks the way I'm wired, that in this moment, where I in the fiery furnace with potentially Jesus and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that the moment King Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, Hey! You guys come out of there. I command you to come out. I'd be like, how about you come in here, right? You want me so bad? Come get me, right? Who's the big king now? You don't seem so bossy now. You don't have very much power now. If you want me, come and get me. I'm right here, right? It's real comfortable here in the fiery furnace, right? The water's fine. Do a little backstroke in there or whatever. I think the temptation for me would be to gloat at this moment, right? To gloat at the power of God, to gloat at His presence, to gloat at the fact that He showed up, to gloat that I was right and He was wrong, right? Hey, remember you asked that question a few minutes ago about who's the God that can deliver me? Well, here He is. Let me introduce you, right? Like it would have been really easy at that point to have taken the high, ro- or the, like the, the high position and to shame Nebuchadnezzar or to condemn him or to curse him, to stay out of arm's length, at the very least to defy his authority. But look at what happens. Nebuchadnezzar comes close to the door and he says, Come out. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. You guys, they're picking the right times to disobey and the right times to obey. Right? I don't know that we're real good at this either. Right? I think sometimes we pick the wrong hills to die on. I think sometimes we pick the wrong fights. Or sometimes, because we're worried about the wrong things, We're fighting battles that don't need to be fought. They could have fought Nebuchadnezzar here. They could have said, we're not coming out. You're not our boss. Jesus is our boss. 
But instead, Nebuchadnezzar says, come out and come here. And they're like, okay. And they comply. There, there's compliance. Why? Because what are, they try, what's, what are they trying to do here? What they're trying to do is be influential in a pagan place that doesn't care about their God, doesn't care about them, doesn't care about their homeland, doesn't care about their values, doesn't care about their laws, doesn't care about their rules. How in the world do you have influence in a place that doesn't care anything about you or what you care about? You don't do it by standing on the high ground and shaming the people outside the fire. You do it by saying yes to the right things and no to the right things. And so when he says come out, they're like, yes, sir. King Nebuchadnezzar, right? They come out. I think that's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. So they come out, verse 27. Satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's movement in the right direction, okay? What we're not seeing from Nebuchadnezzar here is like he, he's not getting circumcised that afternoon, right? This isn't like conversion to the Jewish faith. He's, he's not a, it's, not, it's not everything we might want, but it's movement in the right direction, right? Their God is capable. Their God should not be, you know, spoken ill of or on penalty of death. Their God is more powerful than some of the other gods. That's kind of the essence of what he said, right? It's not, it's not exactly everything we'd like. It's not everything they'd like. But it's movement in the right direction, right? Why? Because they were faithful. And, and so his question is answered. Remember at the beginning he says, Who is the God that can rescue you from the fiery furnace? Who is the God that can rescue you from my hand? And by the end of this chapter, he might not, he might not believe in that God the way we would like him to, but he knows who that God is. And it's a start. It's a beginning. He knows exactly what they did, why they did it, who they did it for. Nebuchadnezzar's final decree isn't fidelity to the true God, but it is a step in the right direction. And once again, we see their influence increase. So without them having to fill out an application, without them having to submit themselves you know, and say, hey, we'd really like a promotion, we'd really like more power, we'd like to have more authority, we'd like to have more influence, can you please give us some? That is granted to them, not because they asked for it or they fought for it or they demanded it, but because they were faithful to God, right? Their faithfulness in a difficult situation, even in refusing to bow down to the idol, winds up resulting in greater influence by the power and presence of God. In our lives, in my life, I'll just talk about me, how about? In my life, I want to be the kind of man who can say with confidence, I know who Jesus is, I know what he has said, and I'm okay not knowing everything he will do or how he'll do it. It kind of changes the way you live. You know, most of, I don't think I said this already, but I, I say it frequently because I think it's important. Most of our frustration in this life um, is, it comes from one of two places. It comes from, um, first of all, it comes from limited knowledge that you don't know what's going to happen tonight. You don't know what's happening tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in a month. You don't know what's going to happen in two years. We, we don't know what's around the corner. And that limited knowledge makes us crazy, right? Because we'd like to know. If we knew, we'd, we'd do some things differently. We'd, we'd make some different choices. But the fact that we just don't know so much, there's so much we don't know, 
right? It makes us crazy, and it makes us fight each other, and it makes us anxious and fearful and scared and whatever. Limited, limited knowledge is one of the big deals that kind of wrecks us as human beings. The other one, very similarly, is limited power. We're limited in our knowledge, and we're limited in our power. The stuff we do know, we can't do anything about, right? So some of you sitting in here might be living with a cancer diagnosis, and you know it, like you've learned it, but you can't change it, and you can't fix it. And that limited power, the inability to change some of the things that we do know, also drives us mad. And it drives a wedge between us and our family and friends and neighbors and fellow human beings and whatever. That limited power and limited knowledge is kind of at the heart of almost everything that, that makes us angry and sad, right? And divides us from one another. The great news is that God, and here's just a, you know, you know this already maybe, but God is not limited in his knowledge. He's what we call omniscient. He knows everything. So in those moments where you're feeling your own limits with regard to what you know, lean, it, lean into the God that you serve who knows it all. Similarly, God is not limited in his power either. He has all the power. That's why the, it's why the Great Commission is so cool, right? Um, sorry, now, uh, what time am I supposed to be done? I've got a couple minutes, don't I? Uh, this, is a, this is a rabbit trail. This is in my notes. But let's talk about the Great Commission for a second. Matthew 28, right? Very familiar to almost any Christian that's been around for a little while. Uh, the Great Commission by Jesus uh, most of the time gets quoted uh, right in the middle. So they quote the, the middle piece of what he says, which is this. Uh, go into all the world and make disciples, or it's probably better rendered, as you go into the world, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything which I've commanded you. Right? That, that's the way it mostly gets quoted. You see it on bumper stickers and tattoos and whatever. Not mine, but somebody else's. Um, what people miss it, uh, the Great Commission is that, but that's not all of it. The great, that's not the totality of the Great Commission. The Great Commission has a, a, a phrase that comes before it and a phrase that comes after it. And if you don't quote those, the, mi the middle thing is impossible. It's impossible. You, me, we can't go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything He's commanded. Good luck, right? Go do that. Good luck. But that isn't the whole of the Great Commission. He starts by saying, hey, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? So he begins by saying, I got all the power, guys. You looking for power? It's here. I got it. Right? Jesus, not Darren. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go into the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything which I've commanded you. And lo, he says at the end, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I'm not going anywhere. Right? So he is both, he has all the power, and he's with us always. Well, you could put literally anything between those two statements, and they become doable, right? I could say, uh, you know, hey, we're going we're gonna to ride our bikes to Hawaii, right? We're going to ride our bicycles to Hawaii. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. And then he said, ride ye thine bikes to Hawaii, and I'll be with you until the end of the age. And you know what we'd be able to do? We'd be able to ride our bikes to Hawaii. Because if he's got all the power and he's with us always, like, what can't we do, Right? The key for us is to remember, in our frustration, in our acknowledgement of our limited knowledge and power, that he, he has all of that, and he's with us always, and he's good. He loves us. We in our lives need to be able to say, I know who Jesus is, I know what he said, and I'm okay not knowing everything. He will do. I'm, I'm okay not knowing everything he will do or how he will do it. A certainty in what he has said, a certainty in what he, who he is. And a certainty in my uncertainty about what will happen next. Because he's God and I'm not. It's a, it's a posture from which to be obedient and to have influence in a society that doesn't care a lick about your God most of the time. So, um, I had another story, but 
I told a bunch of stories tonight. I'll tell you a story tomorrow. So that's, that's good bait to keep you coming back, right? There'll be a, I'll tell you something else tomorrow. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you for their, their example of trusting in you without, without knowing the outcome. Their very honest confession that you're capable of saving them. But even if you don't, it doesn't change the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is not God and you are. And I pray that you'd help us to live uh, with these principles in the front of our minds as we interact with people who are wanting us to bow to their idols, idols of a variety of different kinds, and that many times don't take the form of traditional idols. Would you give us an attentiveness, a discernment, to be able to identify idols where they are, and then to take a stand when we're invited to bow to them? Would you give us the wisdom and the discernment to know what what things to say yes to and what things to say no to. Will you help us to, to rest in the certainty of who you are and what you've said and also the certainty of our own uncertainty about how things will play out because you are God, that you have all the power and you're with us always and you're good and that's enough. We love you, we need you, we can't live without you. Thank you for being a God who's with us in the fire. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.